0: Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Amsonia hubrichtii, Arkansas Blue Star. It has always amazed me how a plant that occurs infrequently in twenty or so counties in Arkansas and Oklahoma has become such a powerhouse in the garden, and it has become so beloved that it was bestowed the title of 2011 Perennial Plant of the Year. Arkansas Blue Star erupts from the ground in spring, with stems covered in thread like leaves. They give this plant a soft, rounded, billowy texture for the rest of the growing season. You just want to pet it when you see it. Like other members of the Dogbang family, Amsonia has milky sap, so if you break a leaf, you'll see white sap appear, so just be cautious as some people may react to the liquid. Stems are adorned with blue, star shaped flowers in May. These flowers are then followed by long, thin, green bean-like capsules that hold cigar-shaped seeds inside. Here's a fun fact. If you collect them at the end of the growing season, you can barely clip off one end of the seed using fingernail clippers to enhance germination. Just soak them in a wet paper towel after doing this, and you'll start to see them germinate within a few days. Then in the fall, the foliage turns a brilliant caramel yellow as it fades, and in amassed planting, this effect is spectacular. As far as where to site this plant that is hardy in USDA zones 5 through 9, it is incredibly adaptable. In fact, I just got back from exploring the wilds of Arkansas to see where this native perennial thrives in situ. That means in its native location. And we saw it consistently growing either right on a creek's edge or river's bank, where the deep taproots help it to not get washed away, and later on assist at finding water once things dry up in the summer. And even with this specificity, we can still bring it into a myriad of garden conditions and put it on dry slopes or the edges of rain gardens, and this plant still thrives. Seeing where it grew in Arkansas really helps me understand how mollusk studying and scientist Leslie Hubrick discovered it in 1942. It was right there along the waterways where he was conducting research. He couldn't miss it, and if you plant this in your garden, neither will you. You can find this plant and many more at your local garden center. Hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Plantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jared. Today on Episode 5, we are going to continue cultivating our gardening skills and and sharing the love of plants with others. So in that vein, thanks to all of you who have shared this podcast with your friends and colleagues. I so appreciate the continued positive feedback you've been giving me. On this episode, I have the great pleasure of interviewing my esteemed colleague and friend, Angela Palmer. She co-owns Plants Nouveau, a trendy new plant marketing company where she manages the annuals, perennials, and grasses, as well as the website, marketing, photography, and social media aspects of the business. Angela has a Bachelor's of Science in Ornamental Horticulture and Landscape Design from the University of Delaware. She has a storied career in horticulture. She worked for many years as the Director of New Products for one of the largest wholesale nurseries on the East Coast, the Connor Pyle Company, where she was instrumental in introducing Knockout rows, a topic we get into on this episode. She also previously managed the plant introduction program for Chicago land groves, as well as the staff and development of half of the collections at the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C., as well as the Arboretum's elite plant introduction program. She also served as the conference director for the annual Native Plants in the Landscape Conference held at Millersville University for 12 years, which having spoken there, I can say is a phenomenal conference for discussing current ecological issues in the world of horticulture. She currently lives in New England, where she has fun gardening in her home garden and pursuing another passion of hers, coaching girls lacrosse teams. You can learn more about Angela on her company's website, www.plantsnouveau.com. That's N-O-U-V-E-A-U. And on Instagram, her handle is at plantweenie, P-L-A-N-T-W-E-E-N-I-E. So let's listen to the plantastic and broad conversation Angela and I had. You're really going to enjoy hearing her perspectives on everything from marketing of plants to the trials and tribulations of plant nomenclature to how we can learn to see everything around us. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today on the Plantastic podcast. It's so great to catch up.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here, Jared.
0: Yeah. Thanks again for reaching out and asking about talking to listeners about how new plants are introduced to the market. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that. Definitely. I was wondering if you could share with us about how your passion in plants got started. And I'm very interested to hear about your pet moss.
1: My pet moss. (laughs)
0: Yes. In researching for this podcast, I found a story about you and your pet moss. So I can't wait to hear more about that.
1: was four years old and we were on a family camping trip and at that point I was an only child because I was the oldest and I was a little bit bored because it was a lot of adults and I was the only child and I just decided to pick up a little patch of moss and carry it around and name it mossy for the entire long weekend. (laughs) So we were at Deep Creek Lake out in western Maryland and I just carried it around and talked to it and pet it. It was very soft. I really think that's what drew me to it. it was so soft. And so then I just decided to make it my pet. And my family still talks about that today. Like it comes up every holiday, my pet moss.
0: I love that. That's great. So from there, was that what initiated your passion into plants?
1: Yeah, I think so. I always wanted to be an engineer, And I got to calculus three and it was three dimensional. And I realized that mm, I couldn't see it. And so I was having a hard time. I went to school in the early nineties and we didn't have whiteboards. It was just a chalkboard. So the professor would tell us to imagine that third axis coming out of the chalkboard. And I'm like, this is not working. I can't do this. And that's when I realized that I had much more of a creative brain than a mathematical brain but I love math and I love science and so I needed something that would combine those two things and that's how I fell into what was supposed to be landscape architecture and then fell into a job as soon as I got out of school with my plant science and landscape design degree and just landed into a company that did new plants and Never went on to graduate school to get my landscape architecture degree. So that's how it all started. I just happened to get a job with Star Roses, was my first job out of college. And they were probably the premier company in the U.S. and Canada introducing new plants at that point, as far as woody plants and and, shrubs and perennials and things went
0: On your college experience, could you talk to us a little bit more about that? What were your classes like? And then I wanted to ask you too, I remember from conversations past, you said you took some classes with Gary Smith. Yes. And I think that you really talked about how that enhanced your creativity. And you said that you definitely have a creative mind. I was curious if you could talk more about those things.
1: Yeah. So I have a degree in plant science with a concentration in landscape design and ornamental horticulture from the University of Delaware. And my classes were, you know, basic plant science classes. So I loved that science part of it, physiology, biology, chemistry, organic, all of those wonderful classes, pathology, propagation. We did a little bit of everything, but then I got to focus a little bit more my junior and senior year and I chose landscape design and that led me to Gary Smith. And he had just started teaching at the university of Delaware. He actually went to the university of Delaware and grew up in Newark and Has become this famous sort of botanic garden planner, artist, uh, landscape architect, and he is one of the most creative people that I've ever met. So I was super fortunate that we were his first landscape design class at the University of Delaware. And Unfortunately, he taught me to see everything. And I say, unfortunately, because once you learn that, I think it's really hard to turn that off. So I have a really hard time relaxing my brain and not seeing every tiny little detail around me. So He taught us that so that we could notice our surroundings when we were doing a design so that we would sit there and look at the sun and look at the existing plants and look at the space and really be mindful of what we were getting into before we started a design project. But it forces you to see everything. Even when I'm driving, I can see decorations on someone's front door and my husband would be like, why are your eyes not on the road? I'm like, well, they are, but I can still see them
0: because
1: (laughs) I can see everything. And my brain picks up every little detail and I watch every commercial and I notice everything. And so it's hard to shut that off. I I think it's a gift and and a curse at the same time. But yeah, Gary taught me um, so many wonderful things just about spacing I remember, and composition of plants, and they always say threes and fives, but that wasn't good enough for him. Your threes and fives had to be in a great shape they couldn't just be he called them jelly beans and so he would come around to our yellow tracing paper that we were doing our designs on and he would bring his marker and he'd be like jelly bean jelly bean jelly bean and he would yell at us for making jelly beans and not having a group of 12 or a group of 11 and then a group of five and a group of three and so he was very much about the natural world and took us out to streams to watch the way the water flowed or to a meadow to look at it from overhead to see the, the groupings of plants and the communities. And he taught us to design projects like that where we would have different colored popsicle sticks. And if we wanted to do a meadow planning, we would put them all in a bunch, all the plants that we wanted, and then throw them up in the air and see where they landed. And that was how we started the design. But yeah, he was an amazing designer and an amazing artist too. So I, I, yeah, everything I learned about being creative, I will give him credit of striking that spark for sure.
0: That's amazing. So, if a horticulturist is wanting to develop this skill of being able to see everything, what would you tell them to do? How could they develop that?
1: I think what we were taught to do was just to go to a space and sit there with a pad of paper and try to notice everything. And so, if you do that when you're at a museum or even in the grocery store. It's hard. You get overwhelmed when you notice everything because there's 800 different kinds of cereal and somebody could just walk past that. My eyes are just going down the aisle because I'm used to looking at everything. So I think just being really aware of your spatial surroundings and in nature and in the developed world even like i said in the grocery store in the in the produce aisle anything like that just noticing all of those differences sitting down taking it all in was something that i know whenever he does a big project he will spend months just sitting different times of the day to see where the sun hits to see where the The light shadows fall, just not even like the sun, but where the shadows are and where the birds land and where any water pools and something we just don't take the time to do. So I think it's good for us to do that just in general in life. Too often we buy a new house and we just want to make a garden and that happens. And it's always wrong because I even did it here. I have a very diverse property here. It's three quarters of an acre. It faces west And so whether you start your design in the winter or the summer, it's a completely different light pattern. And I wound up planting shade plants in completely full sun. And here I've got 30 years of experience, but I couldn't wait. So I think it, it you have to take time to get it right. And when you do, it's magical.
0: I agree. And I did the same thing because living in grad school in an apartment for six years and whenever right. we, and then in a rental house here in town for a couple of years, whenever we got property to grow on, I was like gardening time. Right. And I went out and I planted my vegetable garden where the flood water runs. If we get a heavy <laughs> rain, I'm just like, what have I done? And again, I'm just like you. I'm just like, how did I not pay attention to that? So thank you for sharing all that. I also wanted to ask you too, as you were developing your horticultural skills, I understood that you worked at a Christmas tree farm and also at a nursery. So could you talk about skills you developed there or things that you liked or didn't like about those experiences?
1: Oh, sure. So I was not one of those lucky horticulturists who had a grandmother or a parent who really gardened. So it was all up to me to develop my love of plants and then learn about them. I did not have any teaching. My grandfather had mint and roses. And I do remember he had a chestnut tree that we didn't want to walk around the backyard barefoot when those were down. And those are really my only experiences with plants growing up. My mom was one of the first generation of working moms. And so she didn't have a garden. And so I really had to learn it all on my own. And my first job was working on a Christmas tree farm. Actually, my first real job with plants, if you really want to know the truth, was an overnight job at a vegetable packing plant. So, oh, interesting. where trucks full of corn and peas would come in. They'd dump it down a hole. It would all get sorted out. And then we would put it in huge boxes for it to get sent out to Campbell's soup.
0: Wow.
1: So, honestly, my first plant job. Yes.
0: Okay. Was
1: horrible, but it was a good job. We got paid well for just filling boxes of corn. But so then the second job was on a, a Christmas tree farm. And It was very boring for me because I was by myself all day, and my entire job for eight hours a day was to train the leader of the Christmas tree. So it was tying up that one. It was actually, is it you know playing God a little bit because you're like, okay, who's going to be the strongest? Who's going to get tied up? Which one's going to be the top of the Christmas tree? So it was a bit stressful, and then you had to you know tame down all the other ones so that they made a nice. Triangle is really how they make Christmas trees. It's Mm -hmm. um, just choosing one to be the dominant one. But the sawflies, I used to just walk around with these uh, spray bottles of Safer Soap. And we, they would tell us to spray the soft flies and I hated it because every time you would see them on a branch, you'd spray it and they'd rear up and they'd wiggle around. And I was like, Oh, I can't take this. Like killing these poor little things. Yeah. It was, it was, um, an interesting job. It taught me a lot about pruning, taught me a lot about sawflies soft flies for sure. And that scotch pines are the most horrible thing to prune ever. They just give you welts all over your body. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So they're pretty rough up here in the north. That's one of the trees that people like. I don't know why any would want to have that as a Christmas tree, but
0: is it the needles that do? Yeah, they're the really
1: stiff. They're okay. really stiff. So they really are needles. They will wow. poke you, and you just come home and you just have welts all over your arms from hmm. dealing with them. But yeah, so it was an interesting summer job. And then um, I had a landscape job, and that was okay. It was it was a a boring landscape company, just like tiny little foundation plantings and nothing too exciting. But then my first job out of college, my first real job was working for Star Roses. And I was in the IPM department. I was hired to do IPM. So that's integrated pest management. So it was my job to walk around 50 miles of greenhouses Outside, not yeah. inside. These were like hoop houses, and look for insects and diseases and then figure out what to do and come up with a spray program for them. So I remember many days of talking to the plants, and like, okay, anyone have a bug? Raise a leaf. You would get pretty
0: bored. <laughs> I love
1: that. <laughs> Looking for spittle bug it was always fun to find spittle bug in the spring, but it wasn't for me. It was too boring, not creative enough. and um, taking soil samples. Can only be so much fun for week after week. And then they moved me because the owner of the company just happened to ask me a question. And I was one of the very first female horticulturists that they had hired. I think I was the second one. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so I became the person that everybody would go to on Monday morning when the availability came out, when all the salesmen got the availability and there was a plant on there that they'd never heard of. They would call me, they actually called back then they didn't use email or text you. So they would call me like, okay, tell me all about this plant because I have to be able to sell it. And so that sort of became my job for a while but then the owner just happened to take me out in the rose field and said, I wanna know without me asking you any questions what you think about these plants. And we would walk up to these rows and rows of seedlings that had come from France and they were butted onto understock and they were grown in a field for five years while they evaluated them. And he would just say, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? And he just started asking me questions. I had no idea what was happening. And I was like, oh, it's pretty. I like it because it's pink or it has a lot of petals. And he was like, this is fascinating because he had never had a woman in that position and had always been a man. And so he never got the pretty part of it. And at that point, women were really the most, they were the consumers. And so this company who had been introducing roses for almost a hundred years had never had a woman as part of their evaluation team. So he took me under his wing, taught me everything. It was one of the most amazing times of my life. I was young, you know, in my twenties, single right out of college, Got to go to the south of France and learn how to evaluate roses, learn how to smell them and describe the fragrances. It was a very interesting job. So that's what rocket shipped me into uh, the new plant world, really. And I've never turned back.
0: Why do you think it took them so long to realize that they had to bring women into the conversation?
1: I I just think there weren't a lot of women. In the field, there really weren't. And if there were women at those companies, they were working in customer service or they were human resources. There were not a lot of women coming out of college with degrees in plant science. And I was one of only three at the University of Delaware in my graduating class. There were only three girls that came out of my class. And yeah, it, so I think it was just that there weren't a lot of women, but. I think he saw that I was curious. So one other thing you should know about me is that my mom tells stories about me from when I was a child where we would go outside and I would just say, "But why is the sky blue? But why is that flower pink? Yeah. You know? And I kept going on and on. And she's like, shut up. Why do you ask so many <laughs> questions? And my husband thinks I should have been a detective, but I think <laughs> that's what put me into the new plant world really, because it was just being curious
0: I so appreciate your curiosity because there have been so many great plants that you have helped bring to the table. One of the ones that I didn't know until I started prepping for this is knockout rose. You were instrumental in helping to get that introduced into the horticulture industry. So could you talk to us a little bit about the process and the background on that?
1: Yeah. So that one came... You're one of the most famous roses, right? Probably the one that's made the most money and royalties for the breeder and the companies that have grown it. But it came at a really bad time. It came at a time when people were really shying away from roses because they didn't want to spray. So we had this whole revolution of people wanting disease-resistant roses and the millions and millions of hybrid teas and floribundas and shrub roses that had been sold the sales were just going in the toilet. And so people were looking for other things. And along came William Radler or uh, Will Radler, they call him now. It was Bill when I worked at Connor Pile, And he had been working on disease resistant roses for, I think, 25 years before he came up with this one seedling. And he had several of them, but this one was special. And we had a row of his roses in the field and we would get I think 10 or 15 of each one. And then if we liked it, we would build that up to 25 and plant them in another row the next year. And so this one was at the, I think it was 50 stage and you could just see it from the road you could see the dark foliage and the iridescent pink flowers and the fact that it was just completely clean and it self cleaned. And so we were like, Oh, okay. What are we going to do with this? This is a totally different ball game. This is something that's never happened before. It doesn't have enough petals to be called a rose that it's completely disease-free on the East coast in the mid Atlantic where, you know, black spot just wipes everything out because of the heat and humidity, just like where you are. And so, it it stood out like a sore thumb in the field. And so we just went on a journey to it, talk to every rose grower about it. I remember what, and it has a lot of thorns. I don't know if you've pruned knockout, but it's not a thornless rose. We'll just yeah,
0: and uh, yeah, so It's
1: very <laughs> vigorous. And so I remember walking around, like in a sundress at a rose convention with an armful of it and showing it to every rose garden. And these were like the traditional Texas rose growers and the traditional California and Oregon rose growers and saying, you've got to try this. And they'd be like, well, it doesn't have enough petals. like, but you've got to just try it. And we'd walk around and talk to every one of them. And eventually they all took it. And end of the story, probably one of the most highly sold plants in North America I don't. I'm not sure about Europe but yeah so that started it knockout rose the knockout rose and the name came at it we were just having dinner and having a couple glasses of wine and it just came out and we were like yes that's it and I actually remember we had a boxing ring at the Pennsylvania trade show for the summer of the year that it was introduced and boxing gloves. And it was, it was, oh, it was, that's cute. Because of knockout. And so it was fun marketing as well.
0: Definitely. I love that. And then what makes it so disease resistant? Is it the just complex parentage it has?
1: I think it's because he went back, oh, he went back to the species and started over and just kept going from there. And that's why it took 25 years. But it also has, Very dull foliage. And so the pH is different on those, and it doesn't allow the mildew to stick to it. It doesn't allow the to stick to it.
0: Interesting. Uh,
1: I think, and that's why once it came out, every breeder, because in the U.S., there's no rule against using patented plants to breed further. And so every breeder grabbed knockouts. So you see a lot of plants that look a lot like it with a different color flower. or uh, So it became the parent for disease free roses. Mm.
0: So with them using it, they use it as a parent because the patent doesn't apply to the pollen. Is that what it is? Or once the patent expired?
1: In the U S we don't have plant breeders rights. We only have plant patents. And so it only, it, it doesn't prevent anyone from using that plant in breeding. Whereas in Europe and other parts of the world, there are plant breeders rights. And it specifically does not allow you to use someone else's breeding unless you're going to compensate them for it.
0: Interesting. Okay. I don't think I was aware it's of It's a free
1: all here. It, it is. So anybody can buy a knockout rose and start breeding you with it in their backyard and not have to pay Bill or Will Radler anything.
0: Yeah, they can, but they have to pay royalties if they propagate it. But if it's if the patent's still active and everything, but yeah. they can use it for breeding. Wow, that's fascinating. I did not yeah. know that.
1: So they're really the breeders are really pushing to have plant breeders' rights in the is there they're any movement
0: towards that? Okay, yeah,
1: okay. yeah they're, working on, it. they're okay. working on it, which will make a very interesting new plant uh, world because. As most of the new plants that come from the U.S. are sports or someone just selecting from open pollination. And that will make those plants essentially derived varieties. And then you will have to notify the person who came up with the parents that you've used it. So Mm -hmm. it'll make it a lot more complicated.
0: Yeah. So I know that you're also passionate about nomenclature. And I know that knockout is also rad Raz. and so i'm curious what are your thoughts about cultivars having trademark names is there any effort that we could do to try to clean that up because sometimes even whenever i'm teaching students because we actually just in class so they talked about plant breeding talked about trademark and patents a little bit but i know that can be confusing is there any way that we could have like legal control over the cultivar name So that way it removes that two-step naming type process?
1: So trademarks are tricky. Trademarks protect a name. They don't protect the plant from being patented. So there's no recourse if somebody were to take RAD-RAS and propagate it, they would have to pay a patent royalty. But if they were to call another name, so if they were to call it something else besides a knockout, you have no legal resource. So the trademark lasts for 10 years and it can be renewed indefinitely. A patent lasts for 20 years. So the reason that a lot of breeders, especially on trees, put a trademark name, like you'll notice J. Frank Schmidt always has a trademark name on every tree. That is because sometimes it takes 10 years for a tree especially, to really get out into the marketplace because it's just not a quick process. They are doing tissue culture now, which speeds it up. But still, trees can take 20 years just to get them going. And so they started doing stuff like that with the trademark name so that they could continue to collect royalties indefinitely. So once the 20-year patent is up, they put a trademark name on it so that in order for someone to sell red sunset maple, they have to still pay a royalty because they're selling it by name. And I think what's awful is for botanic gardens and for people who care about nomenclature, that they put these codes. It's all obviously a breeder code and rad isn't that bad, but there are some that are numbers and they're actually telling people to use codes. And we have a line of camellias that's green zero nine five one or something yes, yeah. cultivar name. And then it has a trademark name. Of a you know, uh, October Magic Bride or October Magic Carpet or something—it's whole October Magic series. It's hard because nobody's going to remember that name, and they do it on purpose. I don't have a problem with it if it is on a series. So if you have a series of October Magic Camellias, you could just as easily have called them Red Bride and Pink carpet or something as a cultivar name and still collected royalty on October Magic Camellia as the series. And that's how trademarks were intended, is to be a series name like Coca-Cola and Pepsi. They're not actually trademarking Diet Coke and Lemon Coke and Cherry Coke. And maybe they are now, but years ago they weren't. They're just using Coca-Cola as the umbrella trademark of the series of beverages. And I think that's a good thing because then I think you have a series name that the consumers recognize. I think it is unfortunate for horticulturists and botanic gardens who like to have proper nomenclature and they're just going to put Raz for knockout and they're not going to put knockout. And so then consumers won't recognize it as knockout, but the botanic gardens fight because they don't want to put a trademark on because it's not proper nomenclature to have a trademark. So then they just put the cultivar name, which is RAD raz. And then no consumer recognizes it. And they're like, oh, that looks like Knockout if they knew Knockout. So it's a constant battle. And more and more breeders are putting a trademark or a series name on every plant. And what gets really tricky is when they put a cultivar name that's a code, and then they put a trademark name on that individual plant. And then there's a series name with a trademark on top of that. And that's just crazy. It's so hard to keep track of. It's so hard to police because you lose your trademark, your ability to renew a trademark if people don't list it properly online and in catalogs or on even a sales sheet that they're putting out like an availability or something. And so policing that is a complete nightmare, which is why companies like proven winners actually hire companies to just police their trademarks and their patents. So it has gotten a lot, a lot out of control and I hate it as a new plant introduction company. I think where it does come in handy is when a breeder messed up. Like we had a Clematis guy who, did Some clematis, and then he registered them with the clematis society. And once you register them, the top the clock starts ticking because you have one year from publication. So, if you publish the name, whether it's in a bulletin or anything that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office can find online as proof of that plant name being published somewhere, you can't patent it, and so. Then if you put a trademark on it, you could still collect some royalties for that breeder. And that does happen as well. Yeah, it's a total mess. And unfortunately, the trademark lawyers who are just trying to look out for everybody are encouraging them to do more of this and to make them more obscure so that no one is ever going to want to sell a rose that's named B05617 that they're always going to pay the royalty to call it Oh So Easy Red or whatever it is because that's what consumers recognize. And so they get them into this trap where they're going to pay royalties for the rest of the time that plant is sold rather than just give it a cultivar name and let the patent go for 20 years and move on to the next plant. If you think about how many plants that we have for sale in garden centers and that have been for sale in garden centers for the last 30 years, you can probably count on five fingers, the patented plants that are still being sold that are 20 years old. Knockout happened to be one of those, but it's rare. Typically they're replaced in five years, especially if it's a perennial or a flowering shrub, a hydrangea for God's sakes, endless summer is probably going to make it to 20 years, but Not many of them are because the breeder will come out with the next best red or the next best pink or the next best blue. And that will replace the sales and therefore it won't even be available in garden centers. So I don't know. I'm very torn about it. I'm stuck in the middle of it. I get why people do it, but I wish people would just give something a cultivar name, patent it and then move on. I don't mind series names though, because I think that's a good marketing tool to tie a series together and to also give a story about the breeder or where it came from or where those plants came from, like a collection from the Morris Arboretum or a collection from White Flower Farm or something like that, that would tie plants together and tell a story. I'm all in favor of that.
0: Me too. I agree. In a perfect world, would you say that You would like to replace the cultivar with the trademark to maybe solve this problem, or do you have any thoughts on if you were in charge of everything, how you might fix this problem?
1: If I was in charge of plant introductions all over the world, I would say it would be Nepeta grandiflora, Summer Magic, PP, whatever, and after twenty years, anybody can grow it. I think that's long enough. Like I said, I get the tree people wanting to do it. But I think technology is also catching up and allowing us to get plants out faster with tissue culture. So I think it's becoming an archaic view. I hate trademarks. They are so hard to deal with. It's so hard to get everyone to use them. It really is the bane of my existence. I fight with our webmaster for our website. We just redid our website. We literally had fisticuffs over how things were going to be listed on the catalog and on the website, because he would tell me, oh, nobody cares about those names. They don't care about the cultivar name. They just list a trademark. Ideally, I love it when a breeder just brings me a plant that has a very basic name. It's much easier. You know how to write it. People don't know what to do, where to put the trademark, which way it goes. And it throws off the alphabetical order of everything, too. It's tough. It's really tough. It's a nightmare.
0: Yeah, One that comes to mind is like limelight hydrangea. A lot of times I see it listed as a cultivar, but technically it's trademark name. Yeah. Yeah. And to me too, I think to tie this back to part of the conversation that we were having earlier, you were led through that field by your boss and asked questions about roses. I think that they were starting to envision the fact that you have to connect to the end customer. And this same conversation about names, the comment was made, nobody cares about the names. And that is true. Some people don't. But to me, the names of the plants, getting those right kind of shows that you do care about those things and that you're really interested in the quality and the knowledge that you're passing on to the consumer too.
1: Absolutely. And consumers don't understand anything when it comes to nomenclature. They really don't. And how do you write a common name when you have that code name cultivar and then a trademark name as the marketing name and then an umbrella name so what does it become i mean it's tough it's really hard it's almost a subjective decision by whoever is putting it on their website or in their catalog and then i could look at just our list of licensed growers and find people posting things five different ways on any plant that we introduce and so convincing everyone to do it a certain way is hard as well plus it's just crazy it's crazy if we could just go back to i think when i was in school they had just started having things like the china hollies and the blue hollies and i don't really remember anything else those were the first like trademarked series names, but then they all had nice names like China boy and China girl and blue princess, and they didn't have code names. Now everyone's gone crazy with the whole code name thing.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. One last question about the knockout. I'm curious now that it has been approximately 25, 30 years since that first came out what's your perception of Knockout today? Because there is discussion about its overuse and how it's spreading Rose Rosette. And I was just curious, looking back on it now, what's your perception of it?
1: Yeah, I always said that probably 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, when it was in its prime, I said I was going to write a book or do a little documentary that was Knockout made it to the ghetto because it truly did. It was even where I previously lived in Baltimore City, there were four or five of them planted in front of every section eight housing sign. And it was like, whoa, how much money is he making off the royalties? But the flip side of that is it was everywhere. So it was bound to happen. It was a monoculture for every commercial landscape. So I'm not surprised that it happened. It's sad that it happened, but I think we we go through cycles of learning that lesson. With, we've had several plants, Norway maple. What else did we plant? Lots of elms. Yeah, lots yeah. of plants that have gotten out of control. Bradford pears. There's been a lot. Knockle just happens to be, it was a success story, but then it was just so easy. I think it was the first rose that consumers could really confidently grow if they knew nothing about plants. Mm-hmm. So right. it, it changed people's confidence, I feel. So I think it opened up the world of roses and now we see them everywhere.
0: Yeah. Because I was up at the Scott Arboretum last summer and walking through the rose garden and now the rose garden, they manage it with organic techniques. And it was all these different roses that were mostly disease free. And it was just amazing seeing the diversity that has come out of this approach of trying to make more disease resistant roses. Yes. Okay, shifting gears, I understand you also work for Chicago Lang Groves and also the US National Arboretum. I was wondering if you could talk about those experiences a little bit.
1: Yeah, so I worked for Chicago Langos first. Before the National Arboretum, yeah, that was an amazing program. So I had admired it when I was at Conard Pyle. I worked with Richard Hockey, who does the Chicago Lamb, the Chicago Botanic Garden Plan Evaluation, and then I was I had become good friends with Tim Boland, who was the the curator. I think he was the curator of horticulture at the Morton Arboretum, and through that became friends with Chris Bucktel, who was the I think VP of horticulture at the Morton Arboretum and just fell in love with those two gardens and learned about the program and heard about that job. And I was like, Oh, that is, that's for me. I'm all over that. I want to go to Chicago and I love everybody involved in this program, but it was great plants as well. And so it was one of the first plant introduction programs that was really focused on a region. It's not so much anymore, still has a focus of that, but Everything there had to be hardy to zone five. And everything was found in the Midwest originally or brought back from some collecting trip and just planted at the arboretum or the botanic garden and then selected from seedlings that they had grown from collecting trips. And there was just a lot of cool plants. And it was it was Chicago. So it was a great place to be. And I love both of those gardens so much. And those programs are actually going through a renaissance right now. So they're looking for somebody new to manage it and there's going to be a lot more breeding coming out of them so i'm excited <laughs> to see what's going to be the future of that
0: yeah that is exciting i agree yeah and then you were then brought back east with the u.s national arboretum chop right
1: yes so i wanted to stay with Chicago land grows forever but Back then, they weren't interested in anyone working remotely, if you can imagine that these days, (laughs) someone (laughs) being against that. And so I had to give up the job, unfortunately, because my husband's job took us back to Baltimore. And then the National Arboretum job opened up, and I was in line for that job for about a year. And they had some veterans interviewing for the job. And with the government jobs that are posted, they have to. Interview veterans first just to make sure they wouldn't be qualified for the job. And if they are, they get it. That's great. I love that they do that. So it took a year because there were a bunch of veterans that had applied but didn't quite have the experience that I had. So I managed half of the National Arboretum and it was very interesting. I had the boxwood collection, the azalea collection, the herb garden. Fern Valley, which is the native plant collection, and then the Introduction Garden, which was right around the building and the ponds, and then the Capitol Columns, which were the columns from the Capitol when they renovated it, that were put up there as a a folly. And so I had all of those curators, each one of those spaces had a curator, and so I was managing all of those people, and it was a big job. Wow. Wow. nearly enough people to take care of all of those spaces. But yeah, what great fun. And unlike most public gardens, we pretty much had free reign to do what we wanted, which was really fun because we weren't really going through a big board to, you know, approve. You wouldn't believe what Longwood Gardens has to go through to make a new garden or change something or plant a plant. And that was not the case at the National Arboretum. What an amazing space and what an amazing collection of plants. And they had brought me in originally to help the breeders there who were mostly working on trees and shrubs to introduce their plants. But it just never got to that point. There was a lot of red tape involved in trying to get those plants out and trying to make a little money off of them. And it, it just wasn't working. So I would never got to that part of the job, but that was the intent. I see.
0: And then from there, you've launched Plants Nouveau.
1: Yeah. So I had a brief stint of being a perennial buyer for one of the biggest garden centers in the country, Homestead Gardens, which is on the Eastern shore of Maryland, while I was launching Plants Duveau, because once I left Chicago, I heard about some plant breeders that were interested in working with somebody independent, because at that time it was really big companies. So I'm full swing back to that now, but that's a whole nother story. But 17 years ago, when I decided to start Plants Duveau, there were some breeders that just wanted somebody to take care of them and they weren't getting the, hand-holding and camaraderie out of some of the big plant introduction companies. So they were looking for somebody to be a little bit more personal and help them get their plants out. And so that's how it all started was I had a friend who was from the Netherlands, but now living in the United States and legally and married and had been here for a long time, who was hearing about this from the Netherlands. And so that's why the first breeder that i worked with was a V cultivars and they were from the netherlands and they were having a hard time getting paid royalties and so i said oh i'd love to help you and that was pink double delight echinacea which was our first introduction and that's how plants Duvo started and it's still being sold today so 17 years later that's pretty good success sex story for a cone flower
0: <laughs> sure no i agree that's amazing you've got that longevity out of it so Normally I would talk about how you grow and culture yourself as a creative and a horticulturist, but actually I want to jump right into talking about how you're blooming with your business and current projects you're working on. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about Plants Nouveau. And also let's say I wanted to introduce a plant. What's the process of going from a seedling all the way to it being on a shelf somewhere in a nursery or garden center?
1: Okay, so we'll start with that. That is a totally different process than it was even probably five years ago. Technology has really advanced how quickly plants can be introduced, because unfortunately, a lot of the borders have been closed. And so now we are forced to, because of Xylella, which is a disease that gets into food crops like grapes and palm fruits and things like that, We are not allowed to send plants around the world. So they first have to be in tissue culture and clean of viruses and bacteria, which has forced us to find something we like and put it right into tissue culture, which is a process where they take a tiny little piece of plant and stick it on the culture, just like you do with a strep throat test and it grows because there's food in that culture. And so you can take one leaf and make 30 plants out of one leaf instead of taking a cutting or budding or grafting or trying to root something. It speeds up the process. So you might have gone from one perennial and getting 10 or 20 cuttings to 40 cuttings to 100 cuttings. And now we can go from one perennial and get 5,000 plants in the first year, unless... It's difficult, which happens, but <laughs> right. it's not difficult depending on yeah you know, what type of planet it is. So first, what happens is we look at it and we really look at what the rest of the world is doing. So I think a big part of my job is paying attention to every new plant issue, every Um, feature in any of the trade publications, anything that's going on, like with the California spring trials, anything that's going on in the Netherlands when they have their spring trials. I am constantly reading everything that comes out about new plants because I have to know what everybody else is working on. So if you bring me the greatest new pulmonary And I'm like, yeah, there's five more out there that look just like that. So it's my job to know what everybody else is working on. And that doesn't always sit well with people when they bring you a plant because they might not have that scope and know what's going on throughout the world and know how hard it would be to compete with something that's already on the market that looks very similar or whether or not you could get a patent for it because it might be too similar. So that's the first step is we we look at pictures and then we like to get a sample and grow it. I have a trial garden and a greenhouse in Northeastern Massachusetts. My business partner has one in Mobile, Alabama. So some plants won't grow for me. Some plants won't grow for her. Some grow for both of us. And so we figure out who's going to trial it and see who would be the best Climate for it, it's really great because we have cold tolerance and heat and humidity tolerance in one company, which is great. So I think it's great that we're from such different areas, actually. My business partner knows nothing about growing plants in the north. Nothing really dies back in her garden. I look at brown sticks for seven months of the year. So we're very different climates. So that's the second step is that we like to trial it. If there's enough plants, if you're like a little home plant propagator or a breeder and you've already got a hundred plants, that's awesome because then we'll say, okay, let's take a picture and show it to all of our licensed growers and who wants to trial this. And then we send it out to them and they trial it. In the meantime, we have to get it started on that clean stock buildup. So that's the backdoor process of, okay, we have to get this ready, even though it's going to cost us money to do this. Because if somebody says they like it, we have to be ready to go. And so that's how that process works. And then it's just buildup. Depending on how it's done, if it's a tree that's grafted, we will have... Build up the stock through tissue culture that way so that we have more of them to graft. And it's really about quantities. We also work with a bunch of the big co-op buying groups like Monrovia, which is not just Monrovia anymore. They sell to, I think it's 1200 Lowe's stores throughout the country, so they're working with a bunch of growers who grow plants in Monrovia pots. We also work with Southern Living and Sunset. They do exactly the same thing. We work with Bloom and Easy, which is Van Bell, but they have licensees all over the country growing their plants. Also, Bailey's First Editions. So we feed those groups from behind the scenes, and they take our plants and put them into their brand, and then they do the marketing and make it part of their package. So. We take them to them and we take them to independent growers and we see what kind of feedback we get and where the best place would be to put that plant, where we can make the most money for the breeder, whether it's going to go to specialty garden centers or it's going to go to Home Depot and Lowe's or Walmart or something like that. Obviously, we're trying to maximize The income for the. So that's basically the process. Once we get people interested in the plants, then we start talking about them and we start doing advertising and social media and work with garden writers and botanic gardens. One of the biggest things that we do now, especially with the herbaceous plants, is get them into any trial garden that we can get them into, whether it's Dallas Arboretum or Colorado State or Penn State or Rakers or you know, anybody that is going to get exposure because all the people who buy plants walk through those gardens every summer. And mm-hmm. so that's become a whole other process is getting the plants to the places where the people are going to be who make decisions about what plants to grow. So it's, it was much easier when I started this. You, you, sent someone a picture or you showed them a plant. You said, would you like to grow this? They'd be like, yeah, I'll take 10,000. Now it does not work that way. So it's much more complicated. There's also many more new plants. And I think the hardest part of working with small independent breeders is letting them down and, and telling them they really don't have something as special as they think they do. And that's the worst part of the job. So-
0: Why has it become more complicated? Is it the sheer number of new things being introduced or the sheer number of plant companies?
1: I think the plant introduction companies have shrunk. It's a lot of big companies. So if you look at us and Plant Haven and Plant Tip, we're about the same size on the same level, maybe Green Fuse. And then you have the skip from that to ball and Syngenta and proven winners. And there's a huge jump. It's complicated for that reason. It's also complicated because the technology is allowing those large breeding companies to take something that we could have it in our trade show booth and they could get a hold of it the next week and they can manipulate it and make it 10 times better in six months. So the technology is there right now with the big breeding companies to make whatever they want. It's no longer taking pollen from one plant to the other. It's what color do you want it to be? How tall do you want it to be? And this is how we're going to manipulate it with whatever, radiation, chemicals, whatever they're going to do, gene splicing, to make the perfect plant. And so... We focus on small breeders and botanic gardens and independent breeders, and their job is getting harder and harder to come up with something that's really magically novel that's going to be on the market for more than five years. So it's just, it's so easy now, especially with herbaceous plants. I think the woody plant market and the tree market is a little bit more still, old-fashioned and that a lot of stuff is done from cuttings. A lot of the breeding is still more traditional. It's a lot of selections. It's a lot of mutations and sports. And it's the herbaceous world, the perennials and annuals and vegetables that are just fast as lightning. And if you don't jump on it, you're done.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I did want to go back and ask you a question too, more about the woodies. So you were talking about how people would bulk up a tree and tissue culture so that you have ample supply to graft. Are they doing that so that they have some type of benefit off of the rootstock for the grafting?
1: I think it does make it more vigorous. But I think what's also happening is they're bulking up the understock as well as the plant that's being grafted onto it. So, say we have this red bud that's called Zigzag now. It's got. Yeah. Such zigzagged branches that it's really hard to bud. So we're going to tissue culture with it. It's just that there are so many angles. They can't get the grafting knife in to actually Uh, bud, which is how they grow red buds and so now what we have to do is tissue culture understock and tissue culture zigzag so that there's enough of them and then graft them together and bud it and that plan is even more special because we're trying now to just do it in tissue culture because of the budding being so difficult so that's a whole project in and of itself so i think it's with the trees it's more about getting more quickly it's not so much that they're not going to ever bud them or graft them it it depends
0: so what trends are you seeing within the plant breeding world we're still seeing trends, yeah what still, trends are changing
1: i i think we're still seeing smaller i think we're still and it's not necessarily that 10 years ago, it was, okay, everyone's going to move to the city. So we need tiny plants. Now it's everyone's moving to the suburbs and they have a little yard and they want to have a whole backyard farm and a whole garden and they want to grow their own food and they want to grow their own fruits. And so I think a big thing for us is edible ornamentals. And we are working on a line of columnar apples that really taste good. We are working on a line of roses where you eat their flowers. Hmm. Uh, We're working on a lot of stuff like that. We also have slender trees. That's another thing that people keep bringing us. So we've developed quite a collection of skinny trees that can be grown anywhere, whether it's a street tree or it's somebody actually putting it on a rooftop or somebody putting it right on the street needs to be skinny or somebody just doesn't have a very big yard and they want a parodia. And so here you've got an upright one that still gets the great bark and still has great leaves. And so that kind of stuff is happening. Of course, easy to grow. Everyone always wants easy to grow. Also perennials. I think the trend that I'm seeing and I hope continues is we went so small and then those plants were more like bedding plants and you had to put 15 flocks in a, in a 10 by 10 square to actually get them to fill it up. I think the trend that I would love to see and that I'm starting to see is something that sells at retail beautifully in a one gallon pot in full flower, but gets planted in your garden and actually grows three feet tall so that it takes up some space and it actually looks for just take summer flocks or garden flocks. As an example, some of them are so small, they can't get enough cuttings off of them. Hmm. And so they're breeding them so tiny. And then, it's not that they're manipulating them to keep them small; they just never get bigger. There's some bee bombs like that, and they just look funny to me. I don't want a bee bomb to be two feet tall. It's just <laughs> hard. You want it to be three or four feet tall because that's the height that the hummingbirds want it at, and that's they don't really go down to the ground as much. And so, we're manipulating things too much in the perennial world. I think the breeders that can make the plants look great at retail. And then they get planted in the garden and do what we were taught in school. They sleep. They what is it? They leap, What is sleep, it? Sleep,
0: sleep, creep, leap.
1: Sleep, creep, leap. That's perfect because then you actually have something that looks like a garden. Otherwise, our gardens are going to look funny twenty years from now. If you <laughs> think of look at uh, hydrangea paniculata's they're getting they're like mom size <laughs> it's just like, what is the point i love it <laughs> it looks great in a pot yes but when i put it in my garden i would at least like it to get chest high cuz they're so beautiful when they're in flower so i i think that's a trend that I'm, i am i'm starting to see and i'm hoping that is good mm-hmm. it keeps going
0: i was also going to ask you too about the pollinator trend as well and what are your thoughts on, uh, like, sometimes when plants are hybridized, sometimes they become less attractive to pollinators. I was just curious what your two cents were on that. Or do you think that we're about to see a big push for plants that look great and are also wonderful for pollinators as well, too?
1: I think we're going to see that because I there's a huge, and I love the arguments on Facebook and Twitter and All over social media, where there's the only plant natives because you're ruining the world, or there's let's just get people to plant plants first because we're not even getting people to plant plants. So let's get them to plant plants and then convince them that they need natives in their garden. It's a Doug Tallamy approach where, yeah, you can have that palm evergreen from Monrovia, but it's your garden art. It's not going to help anybody in the natural world, it's not going to feed anybody. So I think that double cone flowers are not popular anymore because they don't produce the seeds that the goldfinches eat they don't get the pollinators they're beautiful but i think we've seen a huge trend in single cone flowers people wanting to go back to them actually looking like cone flowers i remember when Hot papaya came out and we thought we were going to be millionaires because it was the first red double coneflower, and everybody wanted it. And that has really died off. It's still pretty popular, but it's become garden art. So it's not there to feed the pollinators. If you have nothing else, it will feed pollinators. But if you have something else that is better, it's definitely second choice. And so I would like to see us Make sure that they are recognizable to the pollinators. And just to educate people that, hey, if you're looking for a pollinator garden, you need to have these and maybe you want to get straight purple coneflowers or straight white coneflowers and you want to have diversity in your garden. And if you really love hot papaya or pink double delight, just plant it. It's okay to have pretty things, but make sure that you have things that are also feeding the wildlife.
0: Correct. I agree. Is there anything else you feel like the home gardener should know about the introduction of new plants to the market that hasn't already been covered?
1: I think the one thing that upsets consumers that I don't know how to fix it because we're in the business of introducing new plants is that it takes a long time for consumers to really recognize A plant. Say, you had mentioned hydrangea limelight. So that's probably one of the most popular hydrangea paniculata. And they know it by name. I think they're just knowing it by name. It's old to us because we know it's been out for about, what, 20 years maybe. And so to us, it's not new. But we don't even let them get a chance to get used to something And we come along with 10 different ones that are better. And so I think being more selective as new plant introduction companies is a great thing. I think really making sure that it's a really great plant that gets introduced. I think a lot of times the breeders push companies like us to just keep introducing new variety. And what they don't realize is they're just diluting The pool of plants. And so when we take coneflowers or hydrangea paniculatas, they're going to stop growing limelight and grow something else. So it's not like the person who made limelight, if they come up with something better, is going to make three times as much money. It's just going to get replaced. And so let's make sure that what we're putting out there is something that's going to stick around for a while and be worth it and be really great for consumers because it's just going to get replaced otherwise. And it's, it's, I think it's hard for them because they see things in magazines and they see advertising. And I think most consumers now know what endless summer hydrangeas are, if they are into gardening at all. I think they know the drift roses and the knockout roses. and But other than that, they know forsythia and they know lilac and they don't know one from the other. So I think we're doing them a disservice if we aren't trying really hard to make sure that they really are the best plants it's hard to get across to a breeder though it really is because that's their livelihood and they don't like it when the royalties don't increase because they have four new hydrangeas and somebody just says oh okay we'll take this new red one and drop the old red one and it doesn't go over well so it's tough it's like a double-edged sword yeah
0: yeah no i agree so I want to shift gears and talk about how you cultivate yourself as a horticulturist. How do you stay current and also with your, any creative endeavors you do as well too. How do you make sure that you're continually to bring the best to your business?
1: I am very into marketing. So that's my side of the business. I come up with all the ideas for the ads and the website and any social media posts. It's all me. So I feel like I spend a whole lot of time looking at brands outside of the industry to see what they're doing and looking at trends because I feel like We're always a little slow to pick up trends in the nursery industry and in the green industry. We're never the first. So I spend a lot of time scrolling through TikToks and Instagram and looking at what other people are doing and trying to bring those ideas to Plans DuVo. I do that with our trade show booth. I think that's my strength in our little business is that I'm always looking for trends and colors and ideas like that. I love going to trade shows like the IPM show in Germany because there's a whole floor of that enormous trade show that is just floral trends. And if you look at their floral trends, We will see all of those colors show up in everything that we do in the United States, whether it's paint or furniture or flowers or fashion two years after I see them at that show. So going to things like that and really making sure that I take the time to look at stuff like that and allow myself to look at stuff like that is important because otherwise I'd be sitting at a table talking plants with nursery room from around the world, which is also part of my job. But I feel like we can't differentiate ourselves if we don't have something. And I think that's our something is really paying attention to that stuff and trying to be the first to implement it. As far as personally, I love container gardening and I it's not something that's a part of my job at all. But I spend way too much money and make way too many pots, and then curse myself all summer because I have to water them. yeah. out my front porch and my side porch displays is something that has really helped me to focus on writing about that stuff too. Oh, this would be great in a porch pot, and a porch pot and a patio pot are very different things. And so, trying to explain that stuff. So, I think that's something that I really love. I also touring and visiting other people's gardens. Anybody who has a garden, that's my friend. I, I need to see it like once a year because every one of us has different ideas. And I pick up those ideas. So going to the Perennial Plant Association, going to IPPS, things like that, where we get to go on tours of botanic gardens. I'm not so interested in going to the nurseries because I spend a lot of time doing that already. But going to see different gardens or walking through a city just to see how the merchandising is done on a street, all very exciting and feeds me.
0: I wanted to back up and ask you a question about the trends that you see and them showing up two years later in the U.S. Is there a reason why that happens?
1: I don't know why it takes so long. I don't know, but it happens every time. I'd be like, ah, yeah, I saw that two years ago in Germany. Sometimes it might be a year, but typically it's two years. I think that the European floral market is very sophisticated. And so it's a really good place to go look for materials and colors and textures. There's no floral design in the US. I mean, we're getting there, but there's not stuff like you see in Asia and in Europe with the textures and materials that, you know, they were the first people to put leaves in the vase. And we're just doing that now. So it, it it's just a great market to look at. I think it's my favorite place to go look at trends. Also, european cities and their tiny little garden centers and plant shops that's where all of the ideas for all of our cool plant shops in the big cities of chicago and new york have come from they really they existed there a long time ago it took a long time for us to come up with that concept of the little boutique plant shop and now they're popping up everywhere so that's i think super cool
0: Interesting. Okay. So you think it's like the just the fact that they're more sophisticated, that they're generating some of those ideas, like the leaves and the, and the mm-hmm. vases like you're talking about? Okay.
1: I think they're just a more plant-oriented culture, especially in Eastern, mm. Western Europe. So the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Germany, they are, and in Norway, all of that, all of those Nordic countries up there, out there it's just part of life. There's not a moment in their life when they don't have a potted plant on their front porch or on their kitchen table. You don't walk into anyone's house and not see that. We do it for holidays, but we don't do it all the time. Getting people to buy potted plants like you see in Europe is still something that I don't think we've achieved.
0: Interesting. Yeah. No, I love that idea of plants being integral to all parts of life. Are there things that you read on a regular basis?
1: I I like to read all of the English gardening magazines. They're expensive, but I like to read them. I also read Fine Gardening. I read all kinds of, if it's not related to plants, I'm always reading about marketing. I'm reading about social media, how to engage people. I think that's a big thing now is not just posting something on social media, but how do you get people to comment on it? And there are courses on that. I also love uh, Seth Godin. So he's a marketing guru. And so I took his marketing class online and that was super helpful. Just, I I actually, I, I told you, I coached varsity girls lacrosse and we went to a classroom today to watch some film at the high school. And I'm not a teacher, so I just have to borrow someone's classroom. And on the desk was a piece of paper. And this guy I think is a sports medicine teacher or something, something along that line. And it said, it's all about the why. And that's been like my thing for my whole life. I said, it started when I was a little kid, but that's also a Seth Godin thing. So things like that, it's never about, okay, why do we want to tell people about that plant? Why do they want to buy it? What is it going to do for them? And I think trying to put that into everything that we do helps us differentiate ourselves from the big companies. If you go to one of the big companies' websites, you'll find a tiny little description about each plant and a tiny little square of a picture. You go to our website, we put every picture we can find. You can download it. And all the information is very personal. And I think it's all about telling that story. It's all about the why. So that's how I live my life and try to explain even coaching lacrosse. Why are we doing this coach? You just drill coach because you mess this up in the game and this is what's going to teach you how to do it. I explain everything tons. I think it if it's my soul.
0: I love that. And I actually have you to thank for introducing me to Seth Godin because you would post his blog post and I saw following this guy. And so a fun way that this comes back to this is I took the podcast class that oh, he offered. Awesome. And so I've now got a couple of friends, lifelong friends that were always bouncing creative ideas and stuff off of that. Was there anything huge you took out of his marketing seminar that you took?
1: I think just it was all about the why it really was. And everybody there, it was more of a collaboration and you had to bring what you were selling to the table and then they taught you how to sell it. And I don't really have product to sell because we don't sell plants but I have to sell the idea of that plant. And so it was very hard for me because everyone else had oh I sell shoes or I sell bikes or I sell this or I'm selling myself because I'm a writer or what have you. I it was a very it hurt my brain thinking about ways to entice people to buy plants and how to get more people interested in plants. And so it was all about how do we get the person who's never bought a plant to buy a plant. And that's what my focus was for my project. And so it was all about why they need it. What they have to need it, otherwise they're not going to buy it. And so I thought it was great. It was a really it was a great learning experience. It was hard. It was really hard, especially not having a, a concrete product to sell. So I just love his, the way that he writes when he can get a message across in three words and it takes me three paragraphs. So that was a whole nother bunch of assignments that we were given was how to really get it across quickly. And I think that's super important in marketing too. I'll spend days rewriting text for an ad just to make sure that it says exactly what we needed to say. And you just know when you get to that point, okay, that's it. Or when you're coming up with a name of a series or a name for a plant, you come up with things and you're like, yeah, it's okay. And then you hit it and you're like, knockout. That's it. That's the winner. So yeah, that's the fun part.
0: Do you have any daily rituals that you do as a horticulturist or creative marketer?
1: I, I, I look at Instagram a lot. I like to see what other people are doing. So I always scroll through Instagram in the morning just to see what's going on. I like to walk out to the greenhouse so I am lucky that I have a twelve foot, uh, I'm a twenty foot greenhouse, and I, it just helps me clear my head, and it helps me to also see what needs to be watered, <laughs> things <like that. laughs> yeah. what needs to be repotted. Sometimes it does get a little overwhelming, so then I have to step out. But yeah, I think that, and also. Just paying attention to what's going on in the world. So I do watch the news every morning. That's, I don't do anything. I'm lucky enough that I work from home, so I don't have a commute. So I watch the news and I watch all kinds of news just to see what people are hearing, what's going on. It also helps me be empathetic and sympathetic to what people might be going through. And especially now with things being so crazy, I think it helps me to just know what the heck the world is up against that day. And then I can, you know, figure out my day from there.
0: Great. Wrapping up, I have a couple of rapid fire questions that I'd like okay. to ask. So one, is there a gardening myth that you would like to dispel on the podcast? <sighs> Something that a lot of people think is true, but... You've seen research or evidence that, no, that's not the case.
1: I think one that I like to tell people is that hydrangeas, unless you're living in the very deep South, do not need to be in so much shade that they actually will flower more with sun as long as they have enough water. And the fact that they might wilt every afternoon, as long as once the sun goes down, they come back that, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) I think people (laughs) freak out when plants wilt. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, although <laughs> I will say this, sometimes I wish students freaked out a little bit more when plants wilted. <laughs> true, true, true.
1: Uh, or my daughter, who's just now getting into plants, <laughs> I don't know, I died. I'm like, and water
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Is there a group of plants you're gra- really gravitating to right now? Really finding interest in?
1: Ah, oh, wow. A lot of them. What I'm working on right now that excites me the most is a line of Ito peonies in all different colors. And it has been a 12-year project. So I feel married to this one. That one's pretty exciting. The goal was to bring Ito peonies to the market for the same price as herbaceous peonies.
0: Hmm. So
1: it's been a long process of trying to get the propagation down. And I, I love those plants because I feel like they're so easy. I don't know, you might not have, maybe in Tennessee, you were able to grow them, or Raleigh, but I know in the South, they can't grow them, but anywhere that you can grow peonies, they don't need anything. They don't need to be staked, they don't get ants, they don't get mildew, the deer don't eat them, and so I think they're a great consumer plant, and we don't have enough of them, and they've been way too expensive for too long, so...
0: Yeah. I really wish we had some that we could grow in the deep South because Karen is always asking me about peonies and wanting to I grow know. some. So tough.
1: Yeah. It's tough. we yeah. tried some flower wood, but they were okay. Yeah. But maybe there's hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. I saw Bartzilla in Raleigh. And so yeah. that was a good one that would yeah. grow there. Yeah. So one of the things I was impressed by you was you were one of the first women at your nursery company at Connor Pyle to really rise in the ranks. Do you have advice for young and up-and-coming women horticulturists who are trying to find grounds and climb um, into the world of horticulture?
1: That's a tough one. So I feel like I'm still trying to climb. It's tough. We, it's, it's a male-dominated or the nursery industry is very male-dominated. It's changing though. So I get so excited when I see women in power and they're in their You know, late 20s and 30s, I think that's super exciting. I think you just have to prove to the people that you know what you're talking about. Uh, But I still get it. We are a fully female-owned company. But if a man is standing in our trade show booth, people will go to him to ask questions about the plants. So it's just, I was very fortunate that I worked with a staff of very supportive salesmen And they became my family. I was young. And they would just bring people to me and say, oh, but she knows all about these. So come talk to her. But it took a long time. So I think if somebody knows that you know what you're talking about, they're going to help you. So you just have to not be shy to let people know that you have knowledge. And that's what helped me was that I just kept spouting out my knowledge. And eventually it, it worked. But I tell you, it's still a little tough. Still a little tough.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Second to last question. So part of this podcast, too, is always asking the question: how do we propagate and make more gardeners and horticulturists and people who love plants? So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I think with technology, we're going to have an easier time getting information to gardeners. And I think as the millennials And Gen Xers take over the buying population for plants and the baby boomers move on to retirement houses and don't buy as many plants we are going to be able to, through a tag, have such great technology that they can scan it and get a video or sign up for something. The tag companies are doing amazing work and so are some of the brands. So I know Blooming and Easy and Endless Summer both have texts that you can sign up where they'll text you if it's going to be too cold or if you need the water, if it's time to cut back. And I think giving them information is the most important thing. Anything that we can get them, any wholesale website that sells plants that can be more retail friendly and give pruning instructions and watering instructions and planting instructions is gonna be the key to the future because the people, you're an anomaly. You grew up and you are very knowledgeable about plants, but I guarantee you that there are people your age who just bought a house, who know absolutely nothing. And then they're going to buy their plants at Lowe's and Home Depot and they're not telling them any information and there's nobody there to ask information. So I feel like it's on us, the people who are making the marketing materials to get them as much information as we possibly can and make it really accessible. And a tiny little plant tag is not gonna do it. So the technology that we have now that allows them to just scan a QR code and go to, God knows what, anything. The sky's pretty much the limits now is really great. And I think that's how we get more people to garden and me more confident gardening.
0: Yes. Because that's Karen and I were actually having a discussion of the day about how people go out, buy a plant, it dies, and then it just becomes this doom loop of you, you feel yeah. like you're not a success. And we've got to get people on this gardening flywheel. Where they have success, and then it keeps feeding forward, and then then eventually they have thousands of plants like we do, right? <laughs> right?
1: Right, and I think it's interesting that most people start with vegetables, and they're one of the hardest things to grow. Yeah, it's hard. It's not yeah. easy growing vegetables and getting perfect things that are edible out of them. So they need to do a better job of that too. Yeah, the vegetable companies—they can't just put all these vegetables out and then not tell people what to do with them. Yeah, and warn them about pests and. All the things that go with vegetable gardening. So, I think as an industry, we've done a really bad job, but I'm hoping that this technology will make it much easier for us to reach consumers. Do
0: you think, one last question about this, do you think that there's any other technology that's coming besides just QR codes uh, on plant tags that's going to really I revolutionize?
1: Think, I do. I'm really hoping we'll be able to sort of geotag things so that we'll know what area people are in because. Another thing that happens is they don't make a different plant tag for hydrangea endless summer for the, you know, how many states it's sold in, probably 40 of the 50 states that it's sold in, maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. And it's very different living in Mobile, Alabama versus Newburyport, in Massachusetts or anywhere else in the north where you're growing. So somehow we need to do that. And the technology's there. The advertising is coming to us from our phones for every possible product. It's not happening in the plant world. And so somehow we've got to add that and have it go through the tag. And so I think that technology is coming where you'll get specific information for where you live. You're not creepy. It'll know that you're in Boston and it'll know what you're supposed to do with your plant at certain times of the year. And I think that's really exciting
0: cool. That's an exciting feature. Sounds last question. Where can people find out more about you?
1: You can go to plantsnouveau.com and there's tons of stuff on our company and there are bios. I also am on Instagram. I have a personal account and my name is Plant Weenie. Also on Facebook, you just my name, Angela Palmer. And yeah, good times.
0: Okay. Thanks. Anything else?
1: No, just, let's just get people to garden Jared. Woo.
0: I agree. Yes, indeed. Thank you again so much, Angela, for joining me today on the plantastic podcast. Thank you also for your wisdom and insight about how new plants make it to market and how we need to try to improve how we see everything in the world. So thank you again.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Sure thing. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember, plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.